Is he the Jesus Christ of our parents, of our religious ceremonies that we've been so used to for so many years? I mean, if you're like me, and there's some of you guys in here that are, that are, that are like me in the sense of, of we've been coming to church our entire lives. Every Sunday, some of us used to come to church Tuesdays, Thursdays, Friday nights, Saturday morning prayer, and then Sunday, like three times on Sunday. So we, we kind of just got used to church. But that, that builds a callus in our heart when we don't identify the person of Jesus Christ. And so it's always just a routine, and it's always just a ritual, and it's always just ceremonial, but never really much in-depth in our heart. So that's why it becomes easy for us to say, I don't really want to go to church anymore. Like, uh, I'm just going to like not go and, and catch up on the Gabriel Fernandez trial on Netflix. I'm just not going to like, I'm just going to relax on Sunday morning. I just want to eat my Cheerios and, and, and relax. And that just becomes part of who we are because it's just church. And we don't see Christ. But friends, we've been, we've been presented through the gospel of John this wonderful picture of the person, Jesus Christ, whom we've seen through the disciples and what they've said about him, that he is the Lamb of God. That is what rings most deep in the soul of the Christian when we can identify Christ as the Lamb of God. Why is that so important? Because the Lamb has come to take on our guilt and shame and sin and sacrifice for us what we needed to do in, our, in His place, which we could never have done if He hadn't shown up. So when we're able to identify Jesus Christ as the Lamb of God, then we've understood what it means to be a Christian, to walk towards Christ and to walk in Christ. And, and towards the end of this, of our time together, we're going to celebrate the communion. And that speaks exactly on what we've been saying this entire time, especially what we saw in John chapter 1 through John chapter 2, that he is this sacrificial lamb for the cause, for our cause. There was sin that you and I could never pay or could never atone for. We could never work enough to get through or to be right with God until Jesus Christ came into the picture. So there is no better way then to see this presentation than the way the gospel writer John tells the story. And so as we read this earlier in John chapter 3, keep your Bibles open to John chapter 3, we, we saw this, this story of a man that comes to Jesus, and we know his name. This is the first name that is mentioned in, in these, uh, since chapter 1. We know his name. We know his job title. We know his position in society. We know relatively... Few details, but we know enough as to categorize him as one of an elite class who was very pious or religious. And so here we have this conversation in chapter 3 between the man Jesus and this other man, Nicodemus. 
And we have this conversation going. We saw a little bit of what, what happens. He comes to him at night and he asks, and well, he doesn't even ask the question. He makes a statement on the person of Jesus. And he says, you are a rabbi, you are a teacher, and you must be from God. And, and, and then what, after verse 2, in verses 3 and on, we have this conversation where Jesus begins to say statements that are completely opposed to what this guy just said. He starts talking about this concept of new birth or, or being born again. And if you've been in church long enough, you've understood what the, the, this phrase that always comes up, being born again, being born again. I'm a born again Christian. So we're going to get into that when we get there. But that's, that's what's happening. That's what's being presented Jesus counterattacks or, or, or more counter his, counters his statement by saying, you need to be born again. And, and the guy, the only thing the guy said was, you must be from God. But knowing the background and the context, we will understand this conversation on a deeper level, knowing what Jesus is really speaking about. And this narrative and this story reminds us of what it means to come to Jesus because of what we've seen or what we've experienced or the good aspects of Jesus' life. See, Nicodemus comes to Jesus because he has seen the signs. I have seen. We have seen this, this we of, of all these other religious leaders in the in the temple at the time where Jesus kicked everybody out. We have seen. And so he comes to Jesus based off what he has seen and what he has heard. But religious superiority, superiority comes in effect when he comes to him and identifies Jesus like one of his peers. You're just like one of us. You're a rabbi. You're a teacher. You're just like any single one of us in the Sanhedrin. You speak with authority and you must be from God. What Nicodemus fails to see is what many churchgoers today still fail to see. If you rewind a little bit and go back to chapter 1 and chapter 2, you'll be reminded of what the disciples said. And that's why I presented it to you guys earlier on. The disciples, what did they say? Especially John the Baptist. You are the Lamb of God. It wasn't just an identification of a good teacher. It wasn't just them identifying somebody that says, yeah, you know what, Jesus Christ is, he's, he's legit, man. He's, he's a good guy. It wasn't them just saying and seeing that Jesus was, was someone to, to, to be an example. It was John the Baptist saying to his disciples, and the reason why his disciples left John the Baptist to follow Jesus was because of one simple fact. He is the Lamb of God that was anticipated by the prophets of old. This is him. This is the guy that's going to clear away the sin of Israel and that's going to clear away the sin of the world. This is the one who could do it. Friends, you got to ask yourselves this morning, who, who's going to clean you from your sin? Who's going to wash you from your sin? If you're like me, I'm a sinner. I need Jesus. 
I'm, I'm like Paul where he states to, to the rest of, of the disciples and, and to the rest of the people that were questioning his authority. I'm nobody. I'm the worst of the worst. Who's going to help me? Who's going to help you? Is this coming to church some way or some, some type of escape to feel better about yourself? Or is it really because you've identified your greatest need? Which is, who's going to wipe away my sin, man? That's, that's my issue here. I'm a sinner and I can't get rid of this on my own. And some of us can't sleep at night. We're tossing and turning. We're, we're, we, we just don't know what's wrong. And this is where Jesus comes in and says, no one else could do it. You can't do it. Your rituals can't do it. Your religion can't do it. You coming on Sunday morning can't do it. You worshiping can't do it. You lifting up your hands can't do it. I'm the only one that could come and wipe away your sin. That's who Jesus is. And so this morning, as the accurate representation of who the person is, that's, that's it. You come to church because you're a sinner in need of a great Savior. I come to church because I'm a sinner in need of a great Savior. And that I find that, and we find that, and the Bible shows us that. When we, when we sang this song, show us Christ, show us Christ, that's who we need to see. We don't just need to see a teacher or a rabbi or a wonderful example. We need to see Jesus for who he really is. Now this... To put this in context here in chapter 3, go, go back to chapter 2 a little bit. I'm going to read, since we've already read what, uh, our portion today, chapter 3 to 15, 1 through 15. If you go back a couple of verses in chapter 2 and read with me verses 23 through 25, and, and, and this is a, a, a beautiful link that... that focuses on what's happening in the temple at the end of that story, and then it propels us into the story of Nicodemus. Verse 23, the Word of God says, Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they what? When they saw the signs that he was doing. Now stop, pause. They saw the signs. His disciples in chapter 1 and in early chapter 2 saw the signs. See, what we've been doing here is, is exploring how John, in, in the, the gospel writer John, has been putting a contrast between a disciple and just a regular old person that can follow Jesus from a distance, or someone that just knows about Jesus. And, and what John is doing is saying, we are all called to be disciples, not just part of the crowd. And so here, it becomes very clear as to what John is doing when we get into chapter 3. Keep reading with me. Verse 24. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them, because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. I want you to feel those, those nouns of man, 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 because they're going to come up in, in verse 1 and 2. Jesus did not entrust himself to them, but they saw the signs. 
And, and what's most important in this verse is that they believed. They're people that saw the signs and they believed. Yet, Jesus does not entrust himself to them. What this begins to show us before getting into chapter 3 is that there is an inadequate type of faith. There is a superficial type of faith. Because if we leave it off in verse 23, the people have seen and they believe. And we can say, hey, they're Christian. They saw Jesus and they believed in what he did. Yeah, they're, they're Christian. And I think that we would be right, kind of, to identify them as so. Yet, if you've been in church long enough, if we bring this back into 21st century context, if you've been in church long enough, you've identified, even maybe within yourself, people that have been coming to church for a long time that, that raise up their hands, that sing beautifully, that, that, that maybe even up on stage, people that have, that have been in church for a long time, but their actions and the way they treat their, their, their neighbor, the way they treat their kids, the way they treat their wives, it just doesn't make any sense. It doesn't, like, it doesn't make, it's like, bro, you're in church every day of your life and you still treat your son and daughter like crap? You, 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 you collect the offering, you pray for the offering on a Sunday morning and, and you're still out there at night clubbing? Like, it just doesn't, like doesn't sit well. You're, you're, you're preaching the word of God and you're on Facebook flirting with, with other women that are not your wife? Like, like bro, that's not, that's not Christ-like. That's not what it is to be like Christ, is it? And so it, it, we've identified that type of people because those people exist. I was one of those people for the great part of my life. As a pastor's son, I was that type of person. I said I knew Jesus. I said I believed in Jesus. I saw the signs. I identified them. I saw the great faithfulness he had towards my parents. I, I knew all of it. Yet, Jesus did not entrust himself to me. Jesus did not entrust himself to those of inadequate faith. And we're going to get into that a little bit more because it, it becomes a little bit arbitrary. Is, is Jesus selecting who and, and who he's going to trust himself to and who he's not? Is, is this just Jesus like just saying eeny, meeny, miny, mo? Because in the other chapters, he didn't trust himself to the disciples. But here, he doesn't. What's the deal? What's the issue? The issue here is that signs and identity of Jesus based off what he does never makes a disciple and never makes a person who sees Jesus do his thing it doesn't necessarily mean it will bring conviction to their heart to remain followers now we'll say we'll, we'll, we'll bring this a little bit more later on in the in the further chapters of John We'll come back to it when, when we identify who's at the cross. 
Jesus is at the cross, and there's only a handful of people that are there. None of the people that he healed were there. Uh, we don't see the people that he rose from the dead there. We don't see all these people that were once blind and now see there. No one is at the cross with Jesus except for a handful of people. And then you can say, well, what about the disciples that really believed and they weren't there either? And, I, and, and we would say, yes, that's true. Even disciples, true disciples failed but when they saw him rise again to affirm what he was there to do, they're the ones who, began, who, began, uh, who were the, the seed of the church in the New Testament by shedding their own blood. Most of the disciples died for the cause of Christ, emulating their master. So this is important, friends. We don't ever come to Christ and confine in the person of Jesus Christ simply by what we have seen. And Nicodemus in chapter 3 is identified as one of those who were in the crowd in verses 23 through 25. The disciple does not just become a disciple by seeing the power, but in recognition of who he really is. See, in contrast to the disciples and the Passover believers of verses 23 to 25, Jesus in chapter 2, verse 11, go, go back to, to, to verse 11 in chapter 2. Remember this wonderful verse? This is the first of his signs Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. What did Jesus do? He manifested his glory. What did he do? He showed his glory. What didn't he do in verses 23 to 25? He didn't show his glory. As a matter of fact, he didn't even entrust himself to these believers. There's a contrast here between discipleship and those in the crowd simply observing and believing and wanting to follow. I mean, if, if, if there was a guy outside of the street here, like just handing out $100 bills, like with, with no stop, I mean, you and I would be like, I'm going to follow this guy around Cermak. Let me, let me go where he goes. And he just keeps saying, like, we would like that. It's, we don't necessarily need to believe in that guy. We just like what he does. We'd all be following him. We'd all be in search of what he can give. And so discipleship never comes at that simple observation. It comes with identification of who Jesus Christ is. So you sit here today. You're sitting here with us. We've been gathering here today. Have you and I been able to identify, ID the person of Jesus Christ properly? And what's more important here is, I love what verse 24 says back in chapter 2. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people. What it's saying is that he understood their heart. He knew them. And we've, we've always heard this. Jesus knows you. Jesus knows you. It, it becomes 
a parent that after the first year of marriage, we've been in counseling classes with a lot of married couples, and then after the first year or two of marriage, the counseling couple sometimes comes back and they're like, man, I didn't know he was like that. I thought he was different. And it's like, well, you dated for like five years. Yeah, but I didn't, I mean, oh, he just always wants to be with his mom. And, and it's like, yeah, well, that, that happens. You, you got to, that's why we talked about this in counseling class. Yeah, but I didn't know it was going to be like that. I didn't know it was going to be. I mean, that, that happens. You know, I, I, we've been hearing this a lot, and, and I'm not making it up. It, it happens. Sometimes we don't even know each other, but we are in the presence of someone that knows every single thing about us. So what did Jesus see in that group of believers in Passover that he didn't see in the disciples when he showed the, his glory to them? What's scary is that it says that he knew them, or better yet, he knew their heart. If you go with me to chapter 5 in John, we're going to get there soon, but I just want to read this with you. In chapter 5... Verse 42, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. You hear that? God's love isn't within you. There is an absence of God's love. If you go back to chapter 1 and you remember Nathaniel and how Jesus found Nathaniel and he said, I see in Nathaniel, I know Nathaniel, and there is no deceit in his heart. He is pure. There's something different about disciples that just those show me people don't have, and that's a clean heart before God, a heart that can be even more purified by God himself. Because there are those types of hearts that have identified themselves as their own saviors. Like, what do I really need to be doing here? What do I need to be doing at church? Why do you keep inviting me to church, bro? Leave me alone. I'm good. I want to sleep in on Sunday morning. I work my butt off all week. I don't need to be waking up at 8 o'clock in the morning on a Sunday. You're crazy. Leave me alone. Like, there's those people that have identified themselves as their own saviors. And so Jesus Christ is just like, yeah, I mean, cool. Like, yeah, Jesus is awesome. Yeah, hallelujah. Yeah, but yeah, just leave me alone, man. I don't want to go to church. And so these people have seen Christ in verses 23 to 25, but Jesus knows their heart. And, and then once again, what does that really mean? It just goes to show that Jesus Christ is God. Again, the gospel writer John is proving to us once more that this isn't, isn't just a man that teaches. This is God himself seeing and knowing everyone's heart. Go with me to the Old Testament. I want you to see this here. Go to Jeremiah, the prophet. We'll start off in chapter 17, verses 7 and on. 
The prophet says, Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, whose trust is the Lord. He is like the tree planted by water that sends out its root by the stream and does not fear when heat comes, for its leaves remain green and is not anxious in the year of the drought, for it does not cease to bear fruit. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? And then look at verse 10. The Lord search the heart and test the mind to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. God knows the heart. God sees the heart. And God knows that the heart... Verse 9 is deceitful above everything. That's why don't trust people that tell you, bro, just follow your heart, bro. Just, Just do what your heart says. No. No, don't do what your heart says. Your heart will guide you into deceit because it's full of deceit. It's filthy. It needs to be purified. God knows that about you and about me. He knows how wicked your heart is. He knows how dirty and filthy your heart is. And yet he is willing to wash it. Jeremiah will later say he will wash us and give us a new heart. But you see here, friends, it's not only that the heart is wicked, but it's that Jesus Christ, like God, knows our heart. And in spite of that, decides to save us. So as verses 23 to 25 come out of a corporate gathering, remember I think Henry preached about this a couple weeks ago when we were talking about the temple and about the clearing away of false worship and about destroying the false worship of of these religious people. It, It comes from a big group of people and it goes and it zooms in into a one-on-one conversation. Now it's not just everyone out there. Now it becomes about who this person is. And that's why these small details that the gospel writer tells us and shows us and brings forth are so important because in Nicodemus, In this person, we see a wealthy aristocrat with a religious background, and he stands front and center as the voice of Judaism. He is like the spokesman of the Jewish nation, especially because he's a ruler and a Pharisee. So what we have here is Jesus on a one-on-one conversation with a whole system of religious belief. So we we begin to see now and understand what John is trying to do. We have Jesus coming out of cleansing false worship in the temple, and now he's about to confront the religious system of his day, a religious system that showed to be their own salvation. But when it's juxtaposed to Christ, there can't be two salvations. There can't be two ways. Jesus doesn't say, there are two ways to heaven, my way and the Judaic system's way. What does he say? There's only one way. 
And he says, it's me. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Me. So he confronts this reality. And we see this now front and center. Jesus Christ with one of the most powerful men of his day. Someone that ruled within the Sanhedrin. Someone that ruled his people and was from an aristocratic background. A very wealthy family. We have someone here who will come to Jesus with all of this baggage, if we were going to say that in a negative sense, in Jesus' face and shows Jesus or tries to impress him with his lingo. But I want you to understand this too. As we dive deep, and this is all, sorry for taking so long, but this is all an introduction to chapter 3. I haven't even touched on it. But in order to understand chapter 3 and chapter 4, because we get two very distinct people. Chapter 3, we have Nicodemus, the rich ruler. And in chapter 4, we have this Samaritan woman. What's happening here is that Jesus Christ is going to confront the spiritual need of the people. Jesus knows our greatest need. And Jesus Christ sees this greatest need, even in chapter 3 and in chapter 4, with a religious person and a woman. Just look at how beautifully this is put together. Sometimes we read John chapter 4 and we read about the Samaritan woman, but we don't understand it within the context of its writing. In chapter 3, we have a man that's a Jew. And in chapter 4, we have this Samaritan woman that is in sin and has a very sketchy past. We also have in chapter 3, a very well respected man of the Sanhedrin with, with, with position and authority. And then we have this Samaritan woman who is an who is an outcast of society. In chapter 4, we're going to get to understand what it means to be a Samaritan. We don't have to get to that now, but she is an outcast. In chapter 3, we have a religious rabbi who is a teacher. And in chapter 4, we have this woman who is all full of folklore and just stories of her past. In chapter 3, we have a man. And in chapter 4, we have a woman. And the negative connotations from back first century machismo. But they're placed side to side so that you can see this. Jesus doesn't care about position. Jesus doesn't care about authority. Jesus doesn't care about your wealth in society or your ethnic background. Jesus cares about your spiritual need. And he identifies it in Nicodemus. And he also identifies it in this woman's lack of understanding proper worship in chapter 4. So in context, we get to see this wonderful story now to understand what Jesus is about to do. And so in verse 1 and 2 of chapter 3, let's read that one more time. Verses 1 and 2 of chapter 3. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God. For no one can do the things that you do unless God is with him. So we can see this brief introduction to Nicodemus 
as somewhat of a respectful entryway, but also type of condescending in the sense of, you're like us. You're part of us. And kind of in a way where he is going to, I mean, this is why he's coming to him. If you're like us, you might as well play on our side of the team. You might as well be with us because he never really asked the question of what he could do for him. He just kind of assesses the, the nature of his experience. You must be from God. And the, old, and the Pharisees then knew the law, understood that the prophets of old would be backed up by God. And so if Jesus is a modern prophet that they may have been expecting from, from Deuteronomy chapter 18, it might be possible that he is this. So there is some type of like, hmm, Jesus, okay, let me feel you out. But what John does here in writing this begins to introduce us to what Nicodemus is. And in order to understand the rest of the conversations between verses 3 through 15, it's very helpful for us to understand why this man is important as he is in contrast with Jesus. So what are the things that we know from Nicodemus? Now if we dive into the text in John chapter 3, verse 1, what do we know about him? We know that he's a man. We know that he's a Pharisee. We know that his name is, what's his name? Nicodemus. We could call him Nico, just to keep it short. And he is also a ruler of the Jews. That's a pretty well thought out introduction. So just to get these details out of the way, a ruler would simply imply that that Nicodemus would be sitting at the judicial system of all Judea in Jerusalem. What does this mean? He, he sat at the Sanhedrin. What is the Sanhedrin? The Sanhedrin was the supreme court of the Jewish nation, consisting of 70 uh, Jewish leaders, Pharisees and Sadducees, and one high priest. So there was actually 71 that would sit at the court, and they dealt with everything about the Jewish nation. See, the Roman government was like, man, I don't really care about the Jewish nation. We, you guys are just like a nuisance to us. So we're going to let you guys take care and handle your own thing. So figure it out amongst yourself. The only thing that the Roman government actually got involved with was in the death penalty. That's about it. But other than that, the Roman government was like, you do your thing. We don't care. You call whoever you want a heretic. You kick him out of your Jewish nation. We don't care as long as it doesn't have to deal with the, with the death penalty. So that's why later on the Roman government comes in because Jesus is asked to be put to death. So however, he's sitting here. So this is the most, this is like our Supreme Court for us in the United States. This is like a very well-respected place, very well-respected position. So he's a ruler in this type of class and he deals with this. So the people know it. People have seen him. The people know who he is and they see him as a ruler. But he is also what, we in, what we've all known in church, a Pharisee. Now this word gets tossed, and, tossed around a lot in church. Pharisees are often looked at negatively. They're, they're often kind of like the, the, the butt of our jokes as preachers. Like, or, or, or we could kind of call each other Pharisees sometimes. And, and sometimes that's derogatory towards us. But what is this Pharisee? What do Pharisees really do? If you know this 
good for you. But those of us that don't know what a Pharisee is, it's helpful for us to understand what a Pharisee actually is and why Nicodemus is a Pharisee and why it's important for us to know that Nicodemus is a Pharisee. Once again, I didn't write the Gospel of John. John wrote it, and it, it was for him important to identify him as such. So in, in a simple term, a Pharisee, simple description is someone who was an expert in the Jewish law. I mean, if you sit at the judicial system, if you sit at the Sanhedrin, if you sit at the Supreme Court of, of your nation, you should be well-versed in your law. It's like you, you can't go up to somebody in the judicial system and say, is it lawful for me to do this? Or, or is it lawful for me to, to sell this cow? And they'd be like, well, I don't know. Toss a coin. I, I figure that out. Like, no, they need to know the law. Kind of like what you and I need. Is it legal for this? Can we do this? Can we cheat on our taxes during tax? It's like we need to know this stuff. Do I have to report that? Yeah, you do, bro. If it's income, you should. We'll get to that later. But Pharisees were experts in this law. And this is why they had so much influence over their people. This law is, in the Old Testament, it's called the Torah. It's the entire context of Jewish life. Everything about Judaism is found in the law. And further on, the traditions of the elders. This is what all of Israel back in, in the 6,000s six, B.C.s and, and forward, during the times of Moses, this is what they lived under. This is what they abided by. This is what God told them to do. This is what God did. Revelation in Mount Sinai. This is their lifestyle. And so the, the Jewish people submitted to the teachings of these Pharisees because the Pharisees were the gatekeepers of this law. They submitted to their authority and to their teaching. And the law consisted of many aspects. There's about 613 laws plus the, the, the oral tradition that we'll get to in a little bit. But the two major precepts in the law, and this is why the law is so important in Jewish context, is to warn us or to warn the people, instruct the people on two major sins. Two major sins that the law revolves around. First is idolatry, and the second is injustice. So idolatry is easy because the, the, the instructions, if you guys know the Ten Commandments, you know the first two commandments deal with this. God is a jealous God. God doesn't want any idols before him. God deserves the sole worship of his people. We understand that false worship consists of idolatry. If it's yourself or if it's somebody else or if it's something else, it's idolatrous. And God says, I don't want to have this bad relationship with you in my covenant if you're off worshiping other gods or other things. And so the Pharisees were very helpful, to a certain extent, in trying to keep the people away from idolatry, though they failed time and time again. And we, what we see in the Pharisees that, is that they themselves became idolatrous because they're the ones that were taking the money from the people. They were money lovers, and that's why Jesus calls them hypocrites. Like He straight up calls them 
hypocrites because they teach something that they do not practice. But they are also consistent in keeping the people from idolatry and from injustice. The law was very clear. There are rules for how to treat your neighbor. There was rules for how to treat slaves. There was rules for how to treat the foreigners. Everything had to do with how to deal with one another. That was what the law consisted of. And the Pharisees were there to guard this and keep this and protect the people from this. Did they do a very good job about it in the first century? They did not. But this is what they were there to do. So what does the word Torah mean? In the simple sense, the word Torah is instructions. So again, the Pharisees were there to teach and instruct the people in how to live. Pharisees in the first century, in the time of Jesus, they dealt with teaching people how to live in avoiding idolatry and Injustice, And that's why it becomes very important to identify Nicodemus as this so-called gatekeeper of the law. The whole life of Israel depended on the Pharisees teaching and them living according to what the law said. Now, what's the issue with Jesus? Why is there a juxtaposition? Why is there a contrast? Why is there bitterness towards the Pharisees the entire time that Jesus is in, uh, that is living and walking around? Because Jesus comes to fulfill the law. Jesus comes teaching a second covenant. Jesus comes introducing a new law by not abrogating the old law, but by fulfilling the new, the old law and establishing a new covenant. This is impressive. The Pharisees never understood Jesus and always bickered and, and, and were bitter towards him because, because they were, he was teaching another law and they were like, well, that's our job to do. But Jesus was saying, well, look, what you guys have been teaching has been pointed to me and that's good. And now the only thing that we must abide by are the two greatest commandments. And what were the two greatest commandments? Love God, love others. What did the law consist of? Idolatry, love God, and doing justice to others. Others. Jesus is doing exactly what the biggest precepts of the law were about. And he's doing them as the Son of God, as the Messiah. So, in order to keep our minds fresh next week, we're going to keep digging down into this concept of Torah and this concept of instruction and how the whole religious system comes towards Jesus and puts up a fight. What's happening at this point in the conversation, even before Jesus begins to speak, what is happening here is there is man's way of salvation before the way of Jesus Christ. How do we, the biggest question that the Pharisees always asked and that they knew the answer to was how are we saved? For the Pharisees, it's follow the law. Do what the law says. But now in our context, how are we going to be saved? What do we need to be, what do we need to be saved from? And that's what Jesus has come to do.
Save us from what? From sin. The first question that I asked you guys this morning was, who's going to wash away your sin? Are you going to do it? Are you good enough to, to be clean? Some of us can't stop lying. Some of us can't stop cheating. Some of us will cheat on our taxes if we haven't already done so. Who's going to clean, cleanse us from our sin? Who's going to make us live right before God? Who will let us stand righteous before God? Who will declare us righteous? Will you do it? Will someone else do it? Will a system do it? Or will the person of Jesus Christ as the Lamb of God come in to fulfill that greatest need? So my friends, as we, as we in, in a couple minutes, seconds now, we're going to gather to take the communion. And this is what it's all been about. Communion will jump in to show us what Jesus Christ did. You want to see the glory of Jesus Christ? You're going to see it in his blood sacrifice. Stand up with me this morning.